0: Welcome to the Enlorm podcast series, a series that focuses exclusively on patients now referred to as having nanorare mutations. I'm Stan Crook, and I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm. Enlorm is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. Our mission at NLORM is to take advantage of the technology we created at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, anisense technology, or ASO technology to discover, develop and provide experimental ASO treatments to NanoRare patients and to do that for free for life. Uh, Many of you know that in October, we had our first annual meeting and we called it the uh, first NanoRare uh, patient colloquium. I'm learning how to pronounce that word still. Out of that meeting, um, there were quite a number of questions that we simply didn't have time to answer in the meeting. And so, uh, what we plan to do today is, is to take the opportunity to address some of those questions uh, and, and perhaps others that will, will come along. And joining me today is Carissa Lipman. Uh, Carissa is uh, one of our parents, she's a parent of an uh child and she'll be representing all those folks who didn't get a chance to answer their questions. So, Carissa, you've got a big responsibility here. <laughs> uh, we're looking forward to it, and it sounds like it should be a, a a fun time. And so, Carissa, perhaps um, you can uh, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about uh, how you come to be interested in antirrere uh, diseases.
1: Sure. Um, thank you, Stan, for, for having me here. Um, my name is Carissa Lidman and um, as Stan had mentioned, I am a parent of a nano rare child. Um, his name is Riker, and he is a seven year old little boy um, who is joyful and absolutely loves music. Um, what makes him nano rare? is a variant in the CACNA1A gene, it's C-A-C-N-A-1-A. And essentially it's responsible for um, excessive calcium influx into his brain cells. So it kind of causes like a hyper excitability, um, which results in severe seizures, um, as well as severe hemiplegic migraines um, and ataxia among other life-altering conditions. But despite all of this that he has on his plate, um, he's a happy little boy who just loves meeting each day and each challenge with a smile, which is just so inspirational to me. And um, we are just truly grateful to be given this opportunity with EnLorm and it's wonderful to be here.
0: Thanks, Teresa. So, When did you become aware that something was wrong? It
1: was kind of an exciting adventure. Um, Before we became aware of Riker's diagnosis, 24 hours before his birth, I I was unfortunately involved in a car accident, um, which had overturned my vehicle and um, induced a little early labor. When we began noticing uh, a little bit of floppiness and whatnot, we kind of attributed it to perhaps maybe there was um, some sort of trauma that happened as a result from that. But at four months, he had his first seizure, we went to the hospital because it was a status seizure. So it was not stopping on its own. And his oxygen was dipping rather low. And it took a lot of effort to really get that seizure to stop. And we um, remained in the hospital for about a week having all of the tests done and all of them coming back normal, which is a very common story that you hear with usually genetic causes of nanorare rare diseases. So we left the hospital understanding that we were still awaiting genetic results. When we got those results, it was for the, um, the mutation in the CACNA1A gene. It was a little bit of a relief to get a diagnosis, but at the same time, there was Virtually nothing known about it, especially in regards to epilepsy. So it was a little bit of a scary blind path that we traveled for the first few years, trialing medications and just trying to connect with other families who may have, you know, a similar mutation. Uh, we were actually so lucky to find another parent who has the exact same nano rare mutation that Riker has. And so you can imagine that uh, we bonded pretty well. It's been a crazy journey. And our epileptologist had mentioned this opportunity with Enlorum. And it was the first time that we really had hope for a treatment because everything is just really a sorry excuse to control seizures and um, hemiplegic migraines and nothing is really out there to treat the ataxia. So it really, it really gave us hope. And it's, it's amazing because it treats the root cause, which is so important in such a complex disease.
0: It it is a fairly common, but it never ceases to be a tragic story for me to listen to and, and the importance of hope and, So we're happy to have you as a part of the family, and uh, we hope that we can help. Watching your child seize and watching your child have terrible pain and all that takes it out of you, I know. Certainly did me (laughs) Uh, during, during my son's early years, so I appreciate that. Did you have any scientific or medical training at the time in your background at all?
1: I I do um, I so I'm a dental hygienist because of that I have a basic working knowledge mm-hmm. of medical terminology and just understanding how these things work and when um, especially on um, a cellular level when they started to describe like what exactly his mutation does one of the first things I started doing was just as much research and reading as I possibly could because. You really have to be the advocate for your child, um, especially in the nanoware community, because you're the one teaching the clinicians and and the treating physicians what direction they should kind of go in and what they should look at, because you're the one who's done the most, some of the most research um, on your child's condition. So. Uh, It's been very helpful, yeah, having that background. Just just
0: having the basic vocabulary and the reflexes to understand that science is about probability and not certainty and all of that, which I think takes many, many people a a lot of effort to come to terms with. So, I mean, again, knowledge is power. And and, um, so many of our families do not have the basic knowledge. And so one of my really important goals in doing this podcast series is to to give people the basic knowledge so they can exercise the power that they should have. We'll continue our work and we're moving toward treatment. So uh, we look forward to that. Absolutely. Well, I guess we better get down to business now. And so I'm going to turn it over to you and you represent all those people who had questions and didn't get them answered. So you're up.
1: All right, Stan. So we definitely got um, a good amount of questions in. And I know we're going to um, start off by highlighting a few of them and then take it from there, um, depending on our time. Looks like one of the first questions that uh, we chose to highlight says, uh, as you are successful in discovering and developing individualized ASOs for rare patients, do you envision creating a library of ASOs that would be available to patients across the world? Mm-hmm. I thought this was a really, really good question.
0: It is. And it's something that I thought uh, fairly deeply about before I started in Loram. And the answer is, of course, we are. Uh, That library of ASOs grows almost every day because we've filed uh, more than 10 INDs last year, and we're about this quarter alone, we'll file five more. And so, as we gain experience with those ASOs and those patients, they become tools that could help others. And so we're investing more and more time in trying to make uh, everyone aware of the genes we're working on, the ASOs that we have, and seeking out physicians and patients who can, can be helped with the ASOs we already have. It's a challenge today that I'm hopeful will get easier because it's more than just finding a patient, it's also finding a center, a physician, you know, all of the elements that are necessary to get a patient cared for even if we have a an aso Uh, we're also developing a lot of experience in what it feels like when an aso works and how we measure all that and so on and so being able to give new patients the opportunity to benefit from our pioneer patients what we learned in our pioneer patients is i think another important attribute of what we're doing and certainly something that's going to expand over the coming coming years So the short answer, which I should give first, is yes. We are developing that that library, and we have worked very hard to make that library available in a way that functions and gets quality care for for future patients. That's great.
1: Very comprehensive response, Dan. Let's see. Moving on to um, our next question. For uh, disease organization patient advocacy groups that have several patients with the same mutation, Should they apply for treatment as a group or should they apply separately?
0: This is a question we've encountered quite a number of times. And Enlarm is established to change the world one patient at a time. That's our mission. That is the most poetic expression of our mission. And so we respond to applications. And so what we recommend is that each patient, physician, dyad apply independently but obviously, if the association or, or disease association or disease group is helping these patients take advantage of what's being learned as these applications are put together and help each other get them filed. We do not prioritize uh, other than by urgency. I think that's really important. We want everyone who comes to to NLORM to be treated in an equitable fashion. So file, and the and and the association should work with the individual parents, patients, and physicians, to, to facilitate those filings, and and uh, and we're seeing that happen more and more. Uh, it's a slow process. This whole this whole four years has been about teaching the world that these these problems exist and that there are potential solutions and what our process is. We have some more education to do, but that that's the way we're we handle it. One patient at a time, at our best, every single day to, to help that patient. The other thing to remember is even if you have the same mutation, the phenotype can be different. We're in the process of publishing information that shows how different they can be. And I presented some of that at our, our colloquium. And, and therefore, each patient has to be considered individually because each patient is an individual. It's uh, fascinating for someone who's thought about populations of patients his whole career and making drugs for populations to teach people how to change their thinking and realize that when you move to an individual patient, knowing, understanding what afflicts that patient and what's most important to improve in that patient. Are critical determinants of what we do and how we do it. Facilitate each other's uh, application, but we will consider each application as we receive it in the context of what that patient needs.
1: I'm really glad you had mentioned, you know, about the colloquium because uh, one of the things, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I, I remember hearing about that was that um, developing an ASO for an individual patient with the same mutation as a separate patient doesn't mean that that same ASO would in fact work for that separate patient. So that's why it's so important to treat the cases separately because they're so individualized and there's other genetic components that could be influencing the expression of phenotypes and
0: whatnot. Absolutely. And one of our goals is to learn to understand the molecular biology that's explaining that we have the opportunity to do that for the first time really in history in some cases the same aso will work in in many cases that's true but in some cases when we call this allele selective asos where we where we can only affect the diseased or the mutated two copies of the gene and two copies of rna and in that case it's almost certain that the aso will be slightly different because we make the aso not to the pathogenic mutation but to a non-pathogenic mutation. That brings me to a question that I've been asked and that's what's a SNP? And (laughs) let me answer that question before I move on because we'll be using that term I think as we go forward. One of the problems I have with scientists and, and the way we communicate is we like big words when small ones would actually be better. SNPs stands for single nucleotide polymorphisms. Okay, so what does that mean? A single nucleotide, that's each nucleotide is a genetic letter, poly, many, shapes, morphism. So rather than saying a single nucle- single mutation in a single nucleotide, we say single nucleotide polymorphisms, which makes it sound like it's really complex and we sound very smart. It's not. <laughs> you just happen to have a mistyped letter, a genetic letter, or and, and that's all it is. And, but the thing to remember is that we're all an assembly of mistakes. Nobody likes to hear that, but we're all just, you know, random collections of all these genetic mistakes that have been made over the centuries. Each human being will have a hundred million or 200 million or more SNPs, individual mutations. Most of them don't cause disease and they're called silent mutations. And so we take advantage of those mutations that don't cause disease to design ASOs when we need to just knock out the the, the mutant RNA and not the normal RNA. So SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms, just say it's a mutation in a genetic letter. It's
1: like a good way to sum it up.
0: <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs>
1: The next question it's it's a little bit longer uh so i'm happy to repeat any parts of it this one comes from uh, a nano rare family member i have never been so inspired in an opening address as what was provided at the 2023 colloquium by stan crook given the mission of NLoRM, i don't understand how any researching neurologist or researcher in that space would not want to be a part of the absolute forefront of what NLORM is doing. Why do you think there is such an obstacle to being a part of an organization that has for the first time an opportunity to move the needle in such a meaningful way?
0: Well, first, thank you for the kind words. It's easy to be um, eloquent about our mission and it's easy to be passionate about it because these are human beings in need. Mention in the colloquium, it's the biggest shock I've had in doing it in lorem, how difficult it is to identify tertiary care that is medical centers and physicians capable and willing to do this. To be blunt, I think it's principally money. We can't pay for clinical trials. We're not developing a a drug for a patient population and we have limited funds. So we are unable to pay. And most of the time when a company comes and says, we'd like you to enroll a patient in a clinical trial, somebody that's an organization developing it commercially. And there's a lot of money associated with that. We don't do that. There are financial and risk impediments in these institutions that get in the way of getting this this done. And it's very frustrating. In addition, this is so novel that I think a good, there really isn't research funding for this yet. And we're working very hard to educate many others about the extraordinary research opportunity that there is. And so these investigators have their own research interests and this isn't one of them. And so you're talking to a person who has to get grants, has to publish his work, you know, for for his career. You're saying, well, look, I've got all my research interests and this just lies outside of it. No, no thanks. And And so there's just a lot of work to get done. That's the nature of being at the leading edge. And while it's annoying and frustrating and surprising, I'd rather be at the leading edge doing this and dealing with that than standing on the sidelines and watching people suffer.
1: Do you believe that some of it could be a hesitancy to assume responsibility because it's such a novel treatment?
0: Some. The technology has been fully validated during, you know, so many ASOs that have been approved commercially. And, you know, at Ionis alone, I think we've treated a half a million patients in clinical trials, but that doesn't mean everyone knows it. And and these are novel experimental medicines being developed in a way that's never been done before. So by definition, there will be there is risk. And so it wouldn't surprise me if there were physicians who simply weren't willing to accept that risk. We do our best to help them, again, educate them, you know, we provide reviews of the technology and all of the information that we have. But if they're unwilling to even consider it, then that becomes a very difficult situation for us. I think that's a relatively minor component of of the challenges we've run into. I think the challenges are mostly risk and money. and We're working on solving some of those problems, but it really just boils down to us raising more money. And, you know, we're doing it, but it takes some time.
1: How would you describe the partnership uh, between NLORM and the sponsoring clinician scientist. And this is a two-part question. Also, what should patients expect from each, each side?
0: I think a true way to describe what we're actually doing is we're creating a network of nanorare research and treatment centers within LORM at the hub, accepting challenges, creating the ASOs and providing the ASOs to those treating centers. The responsibility of the, of the physician or we, principal investigator, we'll, we'll call him that, because we like abbreviations in science, we, we say PIs. Yeah. Uh, okay, so it's, it's, it's not a private investigator, it's a principal investigator. So the principal investigator's primary responsibility is to take care of that patient and to make in consultation with the patient or parents decisions that are right for that patient. In these centers, typically the patient is sequenced, the genetics sequenced, and then either at that center or sometimes we do it, we sort out the nature of the mutation and we make sure that it's really causative. So all that has to happen before we can make a decision to treat. And then once we provide the ASO, it's the responsibility of the investigator to administer the ASO according to the protocol, collect data so that we can then learn from that patient and assess whether the patient is getting better or worse. Indian uh, in, in Laura makes no decisions about treatment of a patient. we recommend we can make recommendations, but it is entirely the final decision is the province of the physician, the patient and the family. Uh, and so to my mind the the, the the roles are very clearly demarcated and appropriate. And as we expand uh, this network, what I look at is the halo it creates of hope and help. And and the larger that network, the bigger that halo of benefit and hope and aspirations for a better life in, in that sense is that we're at a very exciting stage because we have quite a number of centers already what i hope over the next couple of years is that we'll quadruple those centers and of course every every center that we add becomes a new center of hope
1: it's um really important for patient patients and patient families to kind of understand the roles and what and expectations
0: There are also limits that we have. For example, we answer questions from patients and parents that are generic, but if it's specific to that patient, we believe the right way for that communication to take place is from the physician. And so we provide the information to the physician, but we don't feel that it's our prerogative to speak directly and insert ourselves uh, in between the treating physician and and the patient. That relationship is so important to, to protect. And so we're very cautious about how we communicate with patients and family.
1: So moving on to our next question. Um, this one's a little bit shorter.
0: <laughs> Good. that <does laughs> answer will be shorter. <laughs>
1: I thought you would appreciate that. So this question asks, uh, what do you mean by an optimized ASO?
0: An optimized ASO is an ASO discovered and developed by somebody who knows something. ASO technology now, after 33 years of my life, sounds kind of simple to do. It's not. These are really complex drugs, and and you really need to know what you're doing, and you need to go through every step that we have described at length in various publications and at the colloquium. And so an optimized ASO is an ASO that has been rigorously tested through every step that we recommend and and analyzed um, by people who have experience in looking at these drugs. With all the new companies involved and and all the new labs, that knowledge and experience is broadening. But today, the real experience resides at Ionis and at n It's like any other tool that you use. The quality of the tool matters. And here, the quality of a drug that's being administered to a a very sick patient obviously matters.
1: This next one uh, asks, would you expect to see better results from ASO treatment in patients who are younger versus older?
0: Uh, No, I don't think age is necessarily relevant. What I would say is very relevant is how advanced the disease is. As a general rule, with regard to any treatment of any disease, the earlier in the progression of the disease one can treat, the better. It's just that simple. One of our real goals is to introduce genomic sequencing into all newborns, and when we when we do that, then we'll have the opportunity to get to these patients earlier before they become so sick. You know, with Spinraza, uh, of course, that was our drug to treat SMA. We began by treating the very sickest patients. And as we advanced, we were able, because we had the safety and the benefit and so on, we were able to conduct trials in patients before they became symptomatic. And most of those patients uh, are growing up like normal, healthy children. So there is real value in getting to the patient earlier, in the course of the disease, not not necessarily in in the context of age of the patient,
1: yeah. and I'm glad you mentioned universal newborn uh, sequence. Um that was something that I had heard at the colloquium. I believe it was when Kristen Stevenson was speaking, who's with uh, St. Jude. She had said that she would love for that to be a goal, Universal newborn sequencing. And, you know, the sooner you identify an issue, the <laughs> the better you know, the better the outcome. And um, it, it sounds so simple, but I'm sure it's a, it's a gargantuan task to take on. It stuck with me. I thought, man, that would be such an amazing change to make.
0: Well, the sharp end of the sphere is always treatment. And when you, when you have treatment, it really, or potential treatment, it gives you a great deal more leverage to introduce genetic tests or whatever the test is. Sequencing all newborns is already happening in some parts of the world. The UK, UAE, Singapore, others are already starting it. Um, And so, and there are lots of people like me who strongly believe that this is something that must happen if we're going to change the way we think about health and disease altogether, which it's time. Uh, and, And so it will happen, not nearly as fast as I want it to, but it's going to happen. It has to be done properly with respect for the individual and avoiding misuse and abuse of the information. But my goodness, the first thing is to figure out what might be wrong and get to that patient before it goes wrong if we can.
1: Before more damage is done. Every
0: day that a mutation is expressed is a day that it is doing damage to cells. You may not see it, but it's there. It's doing damage, and as that damage accumulates, it becomes harder and harder to treat.
1: So this um, next question asks about the FDA mm-hmm. and the approval process. The FDA has certain designations for program review, for instance, fast track and orphan. Uh, is there anything like that for nanoware patients?
0: No. All of those designations are focused on a drug being approved for commercial use. We are giving our drugs away and they're not planned for commercial use. The guidance for NanoRare treatment is unique to NanoRare. And uh, we are very pleased that the FDA was as committed to helping these patients as we. We provided lots of comments about what we thought should be in the guidance. And we're very pleased with the guidance. And I've been very pleased with the behavior of the FDA. Uh, Just because you have guidance doesn't mean every division will follow it and every reviewer will follow it. But certainly the FDA is doing its job. It asks us questions. It checks what we're doing. It does all the right things. But we've now filed INDs in four different divisions and had approvals. And it's very clear that the FDA is is anxious to do as much as it can to help these patients. And, And so I think that's great news for the nanorare community. But there are no designations like fast track or that whatnot, because... We're not, we're not seeking commercial approval.
1: There's a question about streamlining NLORM's operations, mm-hmm. which you had, you you have referenced um, in some of your previous questions. Um, uh, it says, I realized that there was significant work done in 2023 to streamline NLORM's operations. Which process in the workflow do you believe can still be optimized to help streamline patient programs?
0: probably every, every step in the process. Remember, this is all new. Nobody's ever done this before. So every step of the way, we learn. We are actively looking at refining our screening systems and quantitating our, our screening systems and asking, do we need to do every step? Do we need to do as many ASOs as each step? What, what how can we make this more efficient? Of course, we built our own lab and, and re- recruited our own staff. And that's vastly more efficient than depending on even, you know, we paid people at Ionis and they they were great, but it's much better to have our own group doing this and the urgency that comes from a single mission, which is to help a patient. We're really working hard to expand our network. The first step is to get a place where these patients can be treated. And and without that, we can't help a lot of patients and their patients going untreated because we haven't. So we're doing a lot of work at that end. And then on on the development side of things, uh, expanding the number of centers that are able and uh, willing to do this for us, getting lower costs out of all those organizations uh, and reducing the time that we wait between steps are all things that we're working on. That's going to be a work in progress. No process is ever perfect. And it's our job to make it better and better. And that will save us money, allow us to treat more patients, and it will allow us to get to patients more rapidly, all of which are important goals for us.
1: And springboarding off of that last question, has there been a a change at all in the amount of time it takes to process a patient and develop an ASO since it began and since you've streamlined?
0: A bit. We are doing things more rapidly and and better. But on the other hand, we also discovered that, for example, we had thought that we would not need to do sterile fills of vials. The drug goes into a vial and has to be sterile because we thought the hospital pharmacists would 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 do it at the hospital pharmacy. It turns out that most don't won't do that anymore, and that adds somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand dollars and another eight to twelve weeks. All the streamlining we did got consumed by just that new step that we had to add. To my mind, it's amazing we we get to patients within 15 to 18 months or thereabouts uh, to begin with. And our goal is to trim that both in terms of cost and time as much as we can. And we'll be working on it over the next few years.
1: It really is a learning process. It is. This next question relates to how patients come to Enlarm. Do you reach out to the correct patients, which presumably need to have ASOable genetic mutations?
0: No, we don't. We don't think that's our role. We, we think that's the proper role of the treating physician, the institutions that were created to diagnose and treat patient. We're not a medical center and we're not the treating physician. Uh, we are dependent on the treating physician and patient and parent submitting applications to us. What we are doing is spending a lot of time and energy, making sure that the world knows that we exist. I think we made a lot of progress there, but again, we're only four years old and we're doing something that before we did it was considered impossible. So it takes a while to ed- educate people. I think it's very important for us to understand our role and what our role is not. And our role is not to make a diagnosis to be the treating physician or an institution taking care of a patient. That has to be separated from us.
1: And I think that's a really important clarification to make and for people to understand. So speaking of educating and training, uh, we have another question that references that. Do you have any activities or ongoing projects that would help educate and train physicians who might be interested in participating within LORM?
0: Well, we publish quite a number of scientific papers, and we'll, we'll, con- that we'll get more and more. Um, we give, I don't know, last year we probably gave 300 presentations. A lot of that. You know, that's the way the scientific community b- basically educates itself. I think longer term, this is a much bigger question than lorem, And that is, how do physicians, residents, fellows actually get trained into what we are actually entering, which is the era of genomic medicine. And I think that's a big challenge. And I know that many learner societies are wrestling with that. I know that medical schools are changing their curricula to try to deal with that. But I think that's going to be a long process. I think as it progresses, what we'll see is much greater use of more current and more immediate teaching tools, uh, such as podcasts. Um, so a physician who needs to get caught up on a, on what a, a ribosec method is. <laughs> there are now all kinds of, of sort of things you can get on the internet and learn that. We're doing what we can to make sure people know about us, but the job of changing the way physicians are educated in the way they think about health and disease is a much bigger job than we can, we can tackle. And that's being, that that's a big topic in the entire field of medicine and science.
1: Thank you, Stan. I think what I'm going to move on to next is, is talking about I think what's on everybody's mind, which is the next colloquium, <laughs> because um, I, I'm sure Amy has been planning the next one since the first one ended. <laughs> so much planning goes into it and she's done such a great job. Um, it's amazing. And um, I'm really curious to hear, and I'm sure um, many of the listeners are too about what's 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 on the agenda next.
0: Well, we've just about finalized the date. It will be in Boston. And Biogen will host it again for us. And we thank them for that. They're they're wonderful partners. And we'll be announcing the date very soon, almost immediately after the colloquium. I, I sent a long note to everybody with my thoughts about what we should do this year. And told them to keep track of it because I knew I'd forget. So the so so we're moving along in the planning for it. Uh, and very excited about having it. And look forward to having a larger audience on site and a larger electronic audience and many more patients and families. Every one of us felt privileged to have so many um, wonderful families join us. And I thought one of the really important moments in the colloquium was the, the patient panel. It's important that everyone know that it's the patient that matters, and that they're not alone. That there are others who are suffering with you. I guess is is the best term, or at least sharing the challenges with you. Maybe that's a better way of expressing it.
1: Yeah, I have to say that was that was so special to be able to meet other families in person, and just see. I mean, the wide variety of backgrounds of of the parents and of of the patients the children that were there and just being able to share their stories it was really special and you know it really struck me how invested everyone at NLORM is um in in the patients at every level it's it, they're so personally invested it was just it it really blew me away and it was so amazing to see in person and I know it's so hard for families of nanomare patients to be able to travel, but if there's any way you think you can make it happen, I really encourage it because it's, it's such a special thing to be a part of. And the people that I met and spoke with, I'll I'll just, I'll never forget those conversations. And I feel like I, I, I'm still processing it, Stan, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was it was that amazing and um i'm really looking forward to to the next colloquium
0: me too uh you know it was privileged for us and uh you know the people who are at NLarm are here because of the mission and the commitment to the mission is what drives and the mission is another human being uh the other thing that i really was pleased with and i'm not sure that uh, people who aren't trained in science and medicine appreciate it fully, is the seniority and the support of the extraordinarily senior leaders that we had at that meeting. Senior, senior leaders across the, the board and to have uh, Chris Vibacher, you know, who's a busy CEO of Biogen, sit through most of the meeting and participate in the reception the night before and so on. Again, speaks to the heart of what we're doing.
1: I definitely felt that when I was there.
0: We were pleased with the meeting. you know, it was our first one. We didn't know how it was going to turn out and um we all felt like we didn't mess up anyway <laughs> and uh, and I and I think the the next one will be even richer and and we'll have a lot more information to share about what treatment feels like what it looks like how we're doing it and 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 I think that's going to be a, one meaningful difference i'm hopeful we can get fdaers to come um they're often reluctant to do that but we're a nonprofit on the other hand we we're we're making drugs that they supervise and so we asked them last time and they didn't come but we'll see again and we'll see if if we can get anybody to come from the FDA.
1: That would um be a very interesting element to to add on top of the already <laughs> almost overwhelming um list of people, speakers, uh topics, everything. It was just, it was amazing. So um yeah, I'm I'm excited to to hear more information about it as it trickles out as as Amy's able to plan and uh
0: you know, sometime in the very near future we'll be letting everybody know and then we'll be putting the program together. And certainly the FDA was strongly supportive of the meeting, but you know, they have a set of rules that they really have to be careful and follow. So we'll see, we'll see if we can we can get somebody from the FDA. Fingers crossed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this last question, it's it's a little bit on the long side, Stan. So <laughs> bear with me. The question states, uh, say a patient is denied from NLORM because at the time of their application, the access to treatment committee declares that the program is not amendable to the current technology and or ASO strategies. But new data technology comes out that suggests that the patient's program has rev- revived potential Will the ATTC automatically reassess the case, or does a physician have to reapply the patient to Enlorn?
0: Really, really important question. So the the first thing to say about that is that anisense technology is still advancing, and I've led personally a lot of the advances and I am leading advances now. And so we're looking forward to new mechanisms and alternative approaches that will make both what we do better and also expand the number of types of patients we can treat. As that happens, what we're doing and what we will do on a sort of constant basis is go back and look at any cases that were rejected because they weren't amenable to anisense, and and then see if if we think they might be. That won't need ATTC. We'll just look at it internally, and if we conclude that that's the case, we'll try to get in touch with the treating physician, the submitting physician, see if they would still be interested. If the patient is still amenable to being treated, and then we can go from there. Technology evolves slowly and in the medical space, but in a sense, is still advancing. And so there will be broader opportunities as we go forward, and we're intending to make those opportunities available to the people who applied and got said no to, as as well as the people who haven't applied yet. Sure. Absolutely.
1: All right. Great, Stan. Well, thank you so much for answering all of the questions that came in, and I'm sure people are looking forward to hearing them um, from all the way back in October.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. well, listen, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to spend some time with you. Hopefully I answered the questions. And if we have additional questions that need to be answered, we can always do another podcast. It's it's fun to answer the questions for me. It's, it gives me a chance to talk, I guess. Uh, that brings us to uh, the conclusion of this podcast. Stay tuned, everyone. There are lots more podcasts coming. This will just take its
2: place among them. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you for having me, Stan.
2: Enlorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorum as nano rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorum comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope, and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Anlorum or today's episode, visit nlorum.org Any questions can be sent into podcast at nlorum.org Search Anlorum on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Denine of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.